0: of Lent, we are going to be making our way through the book of Lamentations, um, which sounds so fun, doesn't it? Um, And it's only fair that I tell you before I read this passage that this is not the easiest one to hear. It's sort of gloomy, um, but you've been warned. So listen now for God's word to you that comes to us from Lamentations chapter 1, verses 11 through 22. All Jerusalem's people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see how worthless I have become. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire, it went deep into my bones. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They weigh on my neck, sapping my strength. The Lord handed me over to those who I cannot withstand. The Lord has rejected all my warriors in the midst of me. He has proclaimed a time against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress, the virgin daughter Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my courage. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is no one to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should become his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples, and behold my suffering. My young women and young men have gone into captivity. I have called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while seeking food to revive their strength. See, O Lord, how distressed I am. My stomach churns, my heart is wrong within me, because I have been very rebellious. In the street the sword bereaves, in the house it is like death. They heard how I was groaning with no one to comfort me. All my enemies heard of my trouble, they are glad that you have done it. Bring on the day you have announced, and let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you, and deal with them. As you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions, for my groans are many, and my heart is faint. Word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. can't say I didn't warn you. This entire book of Lamentations is a lot like January in southeast Michigan. It's cold, dreary, gloomy, depressing, uh, but what will we expect from a book that bears the title Lamentations? Uh, and the question, though, remains as to what is it that has caused such words to be written down, what, such lamentation to be penned and put into our Bibles. What's going on in the book of Lamentations It's what's happening in the background of so much of what we now know as the Old Testament. It, it deals with the pinnacle chief crisis in the life of the people of God, it deals with the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem, the destruction of the city, the raising of the temple, and the carrying off of many of the people into exile. Uh, it concerns the tiny little kingdom of Judah, uh, one of the successor kingdoms to David and Solomon's United Kingdom of Israel. Uh, they had been for a long time now at the crossroads of major world powers. About 130 years before Lamentations is written down, the Judahites witness the destruction of their northern neighbor of Israel uh, by the Assyrians, and Judah barely survives. And now, about 130 years beyond that event, they are now once again at the crossroads between warring factions, much more powerful nations than their own. They have Egypt to the west and Babylon to the east who are at war with one another, and Judah kind of becomes no man's land in this, in this fighting that goes on. For 60 years in the 500s, they are at the crossroads. They're like that no man's land. You've seen pictures of World War I. This is what Judah is dealing with back and forth until finally Babylon prevails. They defeat Egypt, and then they turn their attention towards Judah and begin launching incursions into their nation. And they succeed in conquering Judah, and they install a puppet king on the throne, a king named zedekiah and he lasts for about ten years, and that ten years is turbulent and full of anxiety and uncertainty, as you can imagine it would be uh, then Finally, Zedekiah rebels against the Babylonians and they come back to Babylon or they come back to Jerusalem and they lay siege to the city for about two years. And the thing to keep in mind with ancient sieges is it's not just about the fighting and the soldiers and the weaponry. It's also about the fact that it cuts the people in the city off from resources, famine results, a lack of water, and those sorts of things. And so finally, after two years, the Babylonians break through the walls, they destroy the royal palace, they raise the temple to the ground, and they carry off many of the citizens to exile in Babylon. But even that is not the end of the conflict. Who needs to read the news when you can read biblical history, right? Uh, the, the survivors of Judah's royal family launched their own rebellion, their own revolt against the Babylonians. They assassinate the Babylonian governor, which brings the Babylonians back to Jerusalem, even more fighting, and they carry off even more people into exile in Babylon that this is what's going on in the background of so much of what we now have as the Old Testament. That the people who get carried off into exile are notable citizens of Jerusalem. They are the educated, they're the religious establishment, they're they're people of reputation and note. And so when they end up in Babylon, what they use their captivity for, or at least part of their captivity for, is to begin to put together the stories that we now have as the Old Testament. They take these ancient stories, they begin to weave them together, but often they weave them together in a way that seeks to answer the question of why did the Babylonian captivity take place? It causes this intense theological reflection. It causes this intense self-reflection on who they they are as a people. They, They tell their history all with an eye of what went wrong and the promises of God that they're waiting to be fulfilled to to return back home. And certainly, the Babylonian exile was traumatizing for those who went off into it. Being forcibly removed from your homeland is something that's hard for us to imagine. We, of course, have similar stories in our own nation's history, but it's something that we really read about in our history books. The idea of being carried off from your own homeland and being forcibly relocated, certainly that has to be traumatizing. And uh, it says in Psalm 137, Beside the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept. And and I don't mean to diminish their, their experience, the difficulty that they faced, but their story is not the only one that's taking place during this time of Babylonian captivity and Babylonian incursions into Judah. There's other things that are happening to the people of God as well that not everybody of the nation of Judah gets carried off into Babylon. Some of them flee as refugees into Egypt, sort of like this kind of reverse Exodus story. They get out and go to Egypt away from the Babylonians. But then there are all of those who get left behind in, that, in the ruins of the former kingdom of Judah. These are the ones who couldn't get out, who didn't have the means and the ability to get out. These are the ones who offered nothing quantifiable to the Babylonians. I'm not trying to be crude about it, but quite literally, they weren't even worth the time for the Babylonians to stage a mass execution of. It was easier and more fiscally responsible for them just to to leave these folks there, that these were the poorest of the poor, the disabled, the ones that, that... they had no value or anything like that. That when I imagine the people who are left behind, I imagine those scenes from almost 20 years ago now, if you can believe it was 20 years ago now when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. All of those dire warnings about what was coming that way and and people got out. But of course, there weren't people there were people who didn't have the means or the ability to get out. I still remember vividly those scenes of people wading through the flooded streets after the levees had filled in this catastrophic way, or sitting on rooftops waiting for rescue, and of course the media's portrayal of them as looters and rioters. That these are the people who are left behind. That they're the ones that, that I name in my benediction to you every single week. The ones that nobody loves. They're the ones that Jesus names as the least of these our sisters and brothers. And what the scholar Kathleen O'Connor says is that it's likely these folks who wrote down the Book of Lamentations, these folks who are left behind, that we can sort of imagine they're seen after years of fighting, exhausted, weary, and worn out, uh, facing the daily realities of living under an occupation government, facing the realities of scarcity, living in the ruins of their political, social, and religious life, that prolonged grief of losing friends and family members during decades and decades of fighting, the ones that nobody loves, the ones that are left behind, that this is their poetry, this is their way of reflecting on God. You know, these are not the the people who go off to Babylon. These are not the people from Jerusalem Biblical Seminary who have their PhDs in religion reflecting on what God is like. There so are people living in what I imagine as a, a scene from a post-apocalyptic movie reflecting on what God is like. Living in this sort of apocalyptic wasteland and also living in this theological wilderness. This, this questioning and wondering about God. And we, we see some of that in this reading that I think was in a lot of ways hard to hear. This sense that God is angry with them. The sense that God has punished them. Of course, we progressive Christians would jump and say, well, that's not good theology, right? But that's not really what matters. What matters is that this is how they're experiencing it. They are experiencing this as God's punishment, abandonment by God. And so these poets of the left behind, they do what the people of God for generations have done. They lament. They cry out to God. They implicate God in their suffering. That lament is one of the most uh, common literary forms we find in the Bible. A full one-third of the psalms are psalms of lament. And we don't use the lectionary a whole lot at Greenfield, but the lectionary often cuts out a lot of these lament psalms. We often don't get this chance to hear them. And uh, Jesus laments as he makes his way to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, as Luke tells it to us. He stops outside the city and he cries over the fact that they have not accepted the words of peace. He laments in the Garden of Gethsemane. He laments as he hangs upon the cross. This is what the people of God do in the face of, of hardship, in the face of pain. They lament, they cry out to God. I love the way that the scholar Patrick Miller describes lament. He says lament is like two hot wires, one wire being God's promises and the other wire being the present problem. And when you connect those two wires, that's when the sparks begin to fly. That's what lament looks like. That Kathleen O'Connor says lament is this, this prayer that erupts from this place of woundedness. It's crying out, it's, it's accusing, it's, it's complaining, it's, it's wanting someone to notice, it's God wanting God to notice. And we see these poets who take on the persona of Lady Zion, or daughter Zion in this passage, imploring God to notice them, to attend to her tears, to attend to the affliction that the people are experiencing. It's a prayer. And as she offers this prayer, she also cries out that there is no one else who sees her. The tragedy, I think, of her story is that as she's crying out, she's longing for someone to see, to notice her. But everywhere she looks, people pass by. No one sees or notices her experience. And of course, this isn't uncommon, right? That we like to avoid pain. It's actually a a defense mechanism, avoiding pain. It's a way to keep ourselves safe. It's a gift from God at its core. but Of course, with all of God's gifts, it can become disordered. It can become sort of pathological, and it can turn into what's known as spiritual bypassing. Spiritual bypassing, it's when we use our spirituality as a shield, as a way to protect ourselves or keep ourselves distanced from somebody else's pain. You all have probably either, done spiritual bypassing, I know I have, or you have experienced it yourself. You have probably experienced it at a funeral home when somebody comes in and, well, meaning, it says, well, it's all part of God's plan. Or my favorite line, well, God has another angel now. The person saying that is uncomfortable with the grief present there, and they are trying to... uh, use an opiate to protect themselves from that grief. But in the process, they are not fully attending to the person who is, has lost somebody. You've probably experienced spiritual bypassing in those moments where you pour your heart out to a family member or to a friend. You're going through a hard time. You just let it rip and tell them everything that's going on. And they say, but yeah, but think about all of the other blessings you have. Positive vibes only. You might have spiritually bypassed yourself when someone earnestly tries to join you in what you're experiencing and you say, yeah, but other people have it harder than I do. True, but it doesn't mean what you're going through is any less difficult. It's a way of creating some distance because it's hard to look at difficult, painful things. We experience spiritual bypassing as a society Whenever, whenever there is some act of racial injustice and people take to the streets and say, black lives matter, and the response is, well, all lives matter. Everybody's God's child. It's true, but it denies, it bypasses the particular racial wounding and leaves no space for healing. The psychologist Robert Masters says that we have little appetite for dealing with what is painful both individually and communally. So we prefer these pain-numbing solutions that not only allow us and help us to avoid the pain, but then also justify our avoidance of such pain. That we hear this sort of spiritual bypassing whenever we hear daughter Jerusalem crying out, seeking to be noticed and seen and acknowledged that we all want to be seen, noticed, and acknowledged, especially in those moments where things are difficult. Especially in those moments where we feel like nobody else can understand what I'm going through. We long to be seen and not bypassed. I remember when I was doing my student chaplaincies, uh, student chaplaincy is not just about uh, going and visiting patients, it's also part education and part forced therapy. Um, because they make you do this thing called interpersonal relations, relationships, which is we call IPR, where you sit in a room and you kind of process everything that you're going through as you care for other people. It's just as much fun as it sounds, right? Um, so I remember one particular IPR session. We, uh, it was towards the end of our, of our internship time, and, uh, and we were all sharing these stories of how exhausted and weary and worn out we were. Um, We know what that's like for those of us who care for other people. We we want to care for them, but we also know that it can be exhausting. We start to suffer from compassion fatigue. And so one of the the women in my group, one of the student chaplains in my group, who I'm going to call Alice, she was sharing about how at the end of the day, one of the ways that she recovered mentally and spiritually and emotionally was just simply to scroll mindlessly through social media as a way of shutting her brain down. Scrolling through Facebook, scrolling through Instagram, just completely not thinking for a little while. But Alice is gay, and this was the week after the shooting at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. And so this space that she went to for recovery was now filled with all of these traumatizing news stories. And she lamented to us how clubs like Pulse are sacred places for the LGBTQ community, Maybe the only place in their lives where they can fully be themselves free from judgment. And that place had been, had been desacralized. She worried about how she herself could have been in that club or anyone she knew or loved in the LGBTQ community could have been at that club that night. And, and she said, I feel like I was being attacked for who I was and no one else can understand. Well, our supervisor and as we did in IPR, said, well, Alice has shared this story. Can one of you, can can we join with Alice in what she shared? And me being impulsive and leaping before I look, um, said, well, you know what? I am so sick and tired of these mass shootings. We got to do something about this. We can change this, flying off the handle in rage. And my supervisor in her great wisdom said, you know what? You're not actually joining Alice in what she said. You're bypassing around her. No matter how right or wrong you might be about this particular issue, you are making your way around her. Alice shared a story of what it feels like to be attacked for who you are. Do you all have a story like that in your own life? Feeling like you were made the other because of something you've gone through. And so we went around the room and started sharing our stories. And the one that I shared is one that, if you've been around here for any amount of time, you are familiar with. It's the genetic condition that I have with my eyes, that my, I've so graciously passed on to my children, uh, that our eyelids don't function, it's a genetic thing, and so we ha- we've had surgery, and appearance-wise, it makes our eyes look smaller. And so, when I was a kid, I often got picked on by, by kids on the school bus for this, kids saying, well, can you see out of those eyes? And I'd say, well, I can see your face. Um, Jocelyn, you're laughing too hard at that. Uh. But it always made me feel other. It always made me feel different. always made me feel self-conscious. And by the time we all got done sharing our stories, Alice said, you know, my story, my particular pain is particular, but it seems like other people can understand some level of what I'm going through. It was an exercise in getting off the bypass around what she was naming and actually seeing and noticing and acknowledging her. The author and researcher, Brene Brown, says that when we avoid other people's pain, we not only diminish their humanity, but we diminish our own. That in getting off the bypass and seeing Alice, I actually was able to see some of myself. That we still hear daughter Zion, daughter Jerusalem, crying out in our world that she hasn't gone away, she's just changed and shifted and morphed over time. We we hear her still crying out in those places of warfare and conflict we hear daughter Zion seeking to be acknowledged and seen in places like Ukraine, who for the last two years have dealt with this incredible uncertainty of warfare, some of them living under an occupation government. We hear her crying out in places like Gaza, who are, where lives have been destroyed and torn apart between warring factions. We hear her crying out in, in lines waiting for aid that we continue to hear Daughter Zion crying out every time there's another piece of anti-LGBTQ legislation coming down the pike. We hear Daughter Zion cry out for her daily bread in the land of abundance. We hear Daughter Zion cry out for racial justice. We, We hear her crying out to be seen, noticed, and acknowledged, to not be bypassed. Among the Zulu people in South Africa, the the common greeting is the word sawabona. You were wondering what that title meant in my sermon, right? Sawabona. It's what you say when you meet someone for the first time. It's what you say when when you're seeing somebody you've met before. You say sawabona. But sawabona is so much more than simply hi or hello. It's got this great level of depth of meaning to it. That what sawabona means is we see you. We see you. We see all of you, the good, the bad, the painful, the joyful. We see all of you, and you are valuable to me. Sawabona. Turn to your neighbor and say, Sawabona. Sawabona. We see you, all of you. And then the response to Sawabona is always shaboka, which means I exist for you. Sawabona shaboka, I see you, I exist for you. Turn to your neighbor and say, Sawabona shaboka. I see you, I exist for you. I see you, therefore I will not bypass your pain. I see you, therefore I will attend to your tears. I I see you, therefore I will make a better world for you. Sawabona shaboka, I see you, I exist for you. And maybe in this Lenten season, as we make our way through a difficult book of the Bible, through this book of Lamentations, that we can say to daughter Zion, wherever she still exists in our world, sawabona shaboka, we see you, we exist for you. We will not get off the bypass. And maybe in the process, we ourselves become more full, more human. Sawabona shaboka, daughter Zion, we see you, we exist for you.